0: Hi everyone. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast, where we shine a light on topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. My name's Rose Sullivan and I help connect digital leaders with interim digital talent, and I'll be the host today. Uh, I'm excited to be hosting such a fantastic panel and we're here to discuss our topic, which is digital first and how this empowers the patient. So as you know, already, my name's Rose. I work within the NHS team here at Evolution. I'm specifically working with the ICSs and ICBS, and the podcast just so happens to be my favourite part. So that's me. Uh, I'll go round with some introductions. So Chris, are you able to come in first, please?
1: Thanks, Rose. Um, yeah, my name's Chris Norcliffe. I'm a GP in Manchester, uh, and I'm also a digital lead for Greater Manchester Primary Care Provider Board, uh, which is uh, one of one of one of the first uh, collaborations of this type across the whole of primary care in a, in a region. Um, and through that, I'm also the clinical lead for the Greater Manchester Digital First Primary Care Programme. Um, as with all of the panellists here today, I think I'm passionate about uh, expanding how we use digital tools in, in primary healthcare uh, and making sure that we achieve some great outcomes and great quality in what we deliver for everyone. And I think that digital can enable that.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks, Chris. And uh, welcome back. I am moving on to introduce Farhan. So if you'd like to come in, please.
2: Thanks Rose. I'm Farhan Far. I am a clinically trained pharmacist at NHS, ordered and bred actually. Um, I've got experience in the frontline hospitals. I've worked in commissioning and I've got an interest in digital solutions. I'm well versed with the use of medicines to treat patients and support prevention and health uh, improvement agendas. and digital has a similar offering. So I'm currently the Associate Director of the Office for Digital Health at NICE, which you may know is an evaluator of healthcare interventions. Um, and supporting, I'm supporting NICE in developing a portfolio
3: around digital health technology.
0: Wow, Thank you so much. Uh, and I'll come to you next, day, Adrian, if that's okay?
3: Yeah, sure. I'm Adrian Woolley. I'm a program director, a digital program director in the ICB in Sussex, down on the South Coast. Um, so our, my background really is, uh, was originally technology, then it was management consulting, but I've been in the NHS for quite a while, um, really keen and interested in all things to do with uh, transformation, digital transformation, business transformation, particularly in healthcare.
0: Excellent. All, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and Matt, finally, if you like after- introduce yourself.
4: By good afternoon. Uh, Matthew Knight, I'm the Regional Director for NHS England for London, Uh, lead on the digital first program, which is supporting transformation across primary care. So I think my few passions are improving patient access through digital means and then supporting the workforce um, and the workload. Um, And a hobby is also trying to improve access to patient records for clinical staff and non-clinical staff so that they can support them, i.e. in care homes or wherever the patient ends up as a place of residence is actually the people they're supporting them who've got access to the records.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks everyone for joining me again. Um, Now that we're all introduced, let's start with the discussion. So Matt, to introduce your question, you've posed um, a fact first. Online consultations requests by patients can provide many benefits to both the patients and the way the practice triage prioritise patients based on clinical needs. With approximately only 20% of practices using online consultations as a main point of entry, how do we support and convince practices to the benefits of adopting an online triage? Matt, please come in here and uh, you know give us some background on your thoughts to this.
4: So I've seen many benefits to practices that have embraced online consultations, and that means where they give the patient the option of filling out a form online and submit that as a request into the practice. They give a bit of detail around what's wrong with them, uh, what their symptoms are and and some of the forms allow them to say how they would like to be contacted which could be face-to-face triage SMS messages or even email. So I've seen it work in many places really, really well Um, but the challenge we've got in London and across probably many places across the country is that probably about 20% of practices have adopted it and are using it as their main means of access for patients but there's 80% of Practices that are nervous nervous about using online consultations because it can increase the number of contacts into into a practice. But if you fully embrace online consultations and change your triage model, it actually helps you manage demand. It can help you get the patient to the right clinician first time. You understand what the patient needs are, and there's many benefits to the patient as well because patients can put requests in and say actually I don't want to face to face I just want a a phone triage or I want a bit of information so it it improves that flow of managing the workload but many practices have have got a fear of online consultations and it'd be good to open and get feedback from the panel about their experiences of online consultation how they're managing it in their area and how they're trying to incentivise or encourage practices to take that on board Um, in London we've seen areas where you've got three or four practices that have come together to share resources. And we've seen a few hubs come together where you've got a group of PCNs that are set set up central triage, but we're still struggling on that wider adoption.
0: Bob, I think I'll come to Chris first, if that's okay, if you can come back with a response to Matt's question.
1: Sure. Um, So I think that one of the things with online consultations is that, um, as Matt alluded to, that knowing your uh, demand is really important. And actually what using forms where people are allowed to put that that information up front and explain their problem is really helpful in terms of managing the specifics for a patient. But actually on a macro level, when you look at what online consultations does, it allows you to tell you everyone who's requesting care that day. If we go back five years, people, we didn't have that. But if you talked about telephone demand, um actually quite frequently it, it's um it's not we don't actually know the demand so when you have an, a, a sort of a, uh your standard hardwired phone system your demand is how many people can get through um now we have cloud telephony it does a similar thing and what you're starting to realize is that demand actually is way above the levels that we perceived it to be the only way to manage any of that is to know what your what the ask is, what the demand is. Only when you know that can you start to know if you're managing it. Um, and I think that's something that online consultations uh, really supports with is is looking at that flow through the system. Um, the other thing I think is really key is about, um, I think that online consultations really supports having um, people seen in the right person, right place, right time. And the thing I always add to that is every time, and i think that having that what online consultations can do is really improve the accuracy of Kenya navigation when you have that information up front um and make it a much more efficient system i think it's really interesting when we start to think about well how do we convince practices to to change um and i think for me, one of the things is that actually it's through experience, and it, I think GPs, and I can say this as a GP, were generally stubborn people, and and in and trying to get people to change is a real challenge, particularly in something like general practice, which the model fundamentally hasn't changed since the inception of the NHS in terms of the operating model. In request an appointment, you get an appointment with a with a a person, be it a GP, a nurse, uh, and a, a ACP. Uh, and and that's the pathway through the system. I think we need to start to to demonstrate benefit as we go and and realise those benefits. I think one thing we do badly in primary care is sometimes is, is cons. So a lot of uh, so online consultations were being introduced and the agenda was there pre-COVID. But once the pandemic started, there was a big drive to all of a sudden switch to a um, a remote triage model overnight, almost for most places. And I think actually at the time I thought, do you know what this could potentially be? Although the pandemic is obviously it was a terrible thing. It could have been a really great thing for primary care in terms of, uh, showing an alternative paradigm to deliver care, but we didn't communicate that well to patients. And the perception on the, uh, in the public was the door was shut. And actually it's not shut, it's just we've got an extra door and it's uh, for many people it's a much easier door to access and it's much more um, th- there's many other doors inside it that you can direct people through. So I think we need to do a, a piece of work across the NHS of, of convincing both practices and patients of the benefits um, and sharing good practice and making it less of a we told you to do this so you have to do it and start to to do it in partnership a little bit more um, because at the moment it's a bit of a battle and I think we need to change it from a battleground to a a, a partnership with patients. I think that would really help.
0: Oh, thanks Chris. Um, Adrian you've got some well you've come in there which is just good timing, really. Uh, you've done a lot of work in sticks on this as well so what did you want to add?
3: Yeah I was, I was just going to sort of pick up on, on Chris's point about uh, proving the benefits and it's really hard to prove the benefits because we don't have the data to do it and uh, you know so so the number of telephone uh, calls coming into a practice um we don't we don't have that data and i think practices have this fear of unmet demand coming in from online consultation they have a fear that there's a whole great wave out there of people who are going to be uh, you now contacting them about perhaps trivial matters and they just won't be able to cope with you know they've opened another door in you know that's there's perhaps open you know, potentially all hours, all hours of the day that they're going to just get this, this, this wave of demand in. Now, arguably, yes, there probably will be some un- unmet demand, but there will also be quite a lot of, of, of what they call channel shift, where you've moved patients from who would have to be on, on, on the phones at eight, 8 o'clock in the morning to try and get through. They have now moved to an online consultation. They perhaps realise it's not urgent. They don't need to see the see the doctor today, but they but they have something that they would, that they would like to raise but it's really hard to prove so without you know without having data we we do kind of lack huge amounts of data on demand capacity in primary kit it is quite it is a quite a it's a tricky one what what we did in sussex is we we've come up with this idea of e-hubs which are and everyone likes a hub but this e-hub is about online consultations and we have done it at a locality area so rather than an individual practice having to answer the online consultation our model is that the online consultation would go into the hub and the hub needs to do a really effective sift or care navigation of that incoming demand now if it is in more in the category of something that is 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 trivial or self-care or something that perhaps could be answered by the pharmacy we would expect the care navigation team to to direct the direct the patient to, to where they best best meets their needs where they they can get the care they need so we would try to sift for self-care sift for perhaps cpcs which is the community pharmacy um referral service um if it's a if it's a if it's a clinical problem of a kind of a a self-contained limited acute type scenario then we would want to be using the um the clinicians within the hub to solve the problem. If it's, if it's a patient with comorbidities and complex needs, then we would need to refer back to the practice, but we tried to limit how much goes back to the practice. Now in Sussex, we kind of, we had some money that was, we had some digital first money. We had some winter access funds and we have funded uh, about a dozen e-hubs. So it's covering about a million population size of about a million, which is, which is more than half of the Sussex total population. So it's fair. It's fairly early days, so we're probably uh, about six months into building these things. So it, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to know exactly, you know, how this is going. But this is our this is our sort of our live live pilot at the moment.
0: Super. Um, Farhan, uh, would you like to add? And um, what are your thoughts on the benefits of of this?
2: I mean, I think the, the benefits of having a system like this will hopefully become. There and just echoing the points made already. Data is going to be the key driver of change. This is very much a massive change project. And we're asking cohorts of people that are used to a traditional way of accessing healthcare to change the way they access their, that healthcare. And I mean, if I was talking from a patient perspective, me trying to access my own GP, the bottleneck is that phone line. It only has, it has a limit of 20 patients. Um, so you either get an engaged tone or you're lucky enough to get onto the call and if you get on to the, the the phone line say so after ten thirty, eleven 11 o'clock, you're not likely to get an appointment on that day. Um, so opening up online consultations and online triage could potentially be seen as floodgates opening up for practice. Um, and then there are questions around the triage whose responsibility is that? Who processes do they use to underpin, uh, you know, sending a patient either to the GP or to a physician's associate or to a pharmacy? No. Local relationships need to be really strong as well. I think it's not just something that falls onto GP practices' shoulders. This is where, as you've already mentioned, them um, relationships with local community pharmacies, they need to be willing and able to take on this new workflow. I think this is where ICS is and how they develop and how Joint.Care is intended to support these sorts of programs will ultimately drive the success of them or not. In terms of the cohort. The population tends to access GPS, having information that's really important. We've already mentioned comorbidities. How many of those patients are older patients who may not be comfortable with using a, an online system, and this brings into question things like digital exclusion and things like that, which discuss later on in this call. But I do think you know, if we were to put it back to the principles of change management, communication is critical for this. Um, My own GP practice has an online system which it uses, I've personally never tried to access it. Um, I wasn't even aware of it to be honest until I was told about it on the phone. And I think this there's a real issue with how this, this, information is spread. Um, but you can see, I mean, we've got models of, of this already, the likes of Babylon, for example, and what they've done for online consultation. It'd be good to understand what population of Haitian, what cohort they serve best. Are there young patients that are familiar with digital technology and
1: more comfortable using them? Is that the right cohort to target?
0: Chris, you've got your hands up. Please, add.
1: (laughs) So I just had a couple of things to sort of follow on from those points. Um, So one was just about in terms of measuring data. So data, we all know, is hugely important. We want to make informed decisions. Um, For me, when we look at sort of quality in in healthcare, there's three broad categories that I like to consider, which are outcomes, safety and, and experience. I think you can draw data from all, all of those three tranches. I think in terms of the experience, I think again it's something we don't do well in the NHS is actually measure people's experience. If you look around the world, or Babylon are a good example in this specific um uh, example of of gathering data that they gather feedback really granularly, granularly um for for people's experience of using their service. Um, and I think that's the feel, the driver because actually online consultations should promote a better experience. So my experience of using it is that uh, as a patient, uh, as someone that fortunately doesn't have any chronic diseases, so I use it in a very transact- healthcare in a transactional way, is that it, I submitted a, a query and I had a response the same day. It didn't require me to, to spend an hour in the morning phoning up when amongst work I also have children to get to school and things like that it, you know eight o'clock is when is open is just about the worst time you can imagine having to commit time to sitting on a phone and ultimately frustrating um and it, so so my experience was good and it dried me to to use it again it and particularly given my role it drives me to to explain to other people oh, have you tried doing it this way and I, several friends and colleagues have, have tried it and had good experiences that's not universal but i think those uh that one kind of albeit very soft data is important and i think that's a, that's the a sort of thing that can drive change the other thing i wanted to comment on was um was consistency and one of the things in greater manchester that i want us to achieve is to have a a, a simplified way of accessing primary care across the system so we work even now we're working in icss there are people that straddle boundaries and there's so much variation within uh within an area in how people access care so for example i've just given an anecdote of me accessing uh, an online consultation platform for my practice and and Fahan has given a, an example where he doesn't so because he didn't know about it so there's these this wide variability and and really we need to look at how we design a digital tool so you can move around a system and actually it's simplified how you do it because you may have it you may be a carer for someone that lives elsewhere in another ICS area or another PCN in your uh, in your locality and you shouldn't have to relearn how you use a, a access primary care from place to place and and you know there's there's various things that that contribute to that uh, if you just look to practice websites, the variability in design is is, is huge. Um, however, if you go in, and it's really simple things. So if you think about online shopping and you think about where the shopping cart is, it's invariably in the top right corner and the menu is in the top right corner. And these little nuances of how we need to, not everything needs to look the same. Standardization is not about making everything blanket the same, but it's about having standards of how we deliver things and, and consistency. And I think once we start to have that um, sort of as a, a cultural way of using healthcare, and it's it's not something you have to relearn everywhere you go, I think that's something can help drive uh, uptake um, perhaps slightly gradually, but I think that would be really important.
0: Excellent. Really good stuff. Uh, Matt, please come in with your comments.
4: No, they're really, really helpful and very thought-provoking. And I think I've, I've, we've got some examples of where hubs or have been working really well or online consultations have been working really well. I'm just thinking of Chris's feedback around that communication and sharing good practice. I just want to pick up a little bit more on that because I think that's one of the things we're trying to work out. How do we do and how do we from a regional point of view go and share good practice because I've seen there's a first four group in North East London demographic um, majority of the patients' English is a second or third language. They've improved access Um, They get response normally within 15, 16 hours. They've reduced telephone calls by 33% and 15% of demand has been passed out to admin or uh, picking up some of the examples out out to the pharmacy. So we know where the model can get, get right. We get it right. It can work and give benefits to the practice, the practice staff and the patients. It's just that pick up your point, Chris, any recommendations on how we start engaging more with practices the ones that are really busy where are they going to go that we can i suppose give them some information that can go actually that sounds like a good idea i want to find out more um,
1: so i am happy to share what we're doing in greater manchester which is uh, we're in the process of uh, we're setting up uh, our own eHub uh, e-hub projects which we've called our lighthouse project where we've got two pcns um which we went through a quite a rigorous selection process to pick out one that was what we define as digitally mature. Uh, and another that was, uh, we were very careful how we labeled it. it as an opportunity PCN, the one that they, they had the ambition, perhaps were are not quite in the right place. Uh, and we're in the process of, um, uh, sort of an intensive six month trial, um, which is well resourced through digital first funding, but partnered with that is a, a community of practice. So. We've got um, around 65 PCNs in Greater Manchester. Um, And of those 14 expressed an interest to be one of our two lighthouse projects, which was um, a real validation that it was something that the system wanted because that's relatively unheard of in terms of expressions of interest. But we've invited all of those PCNs to be involved in a community of practice as we go through the programme. I think that one thing is much, and I'll contradict myself here, data is hugely important, but we can't, it, it's almost out of date by the time you report on something long after the event has happened. So trying to make that a dynamic learning process so we learn as we go. Um, we were planning on having that as a as a regular sort of meeting webinar, but as I'm sure everyone on the call has experienced, my diary certainly is full of regular meetings, ad hoc meetings, and asking people to commit to a fortnightly call is probably unrealistic so we're creating a through our uh, gm primary care board uh, website we've got a, a general practice section we'll be having our community practice as a sort of a knowledge hub there where we're going to have um vignettes little case studies video interviews with people going through the change process and shared shared the learning positive and negative um to try and so break down some of those barriers to change um and hopefully address some of the perceptions that digital transformation is too hard it's not i'm not saying it's easy but i i certainly think it's worth doing um and just try and soften soften the blows slightly and 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 support people into initiating change i don't know if that's helpful that that's that's the approach we're, we're taking and um, I'm more than happy to share it as we go along. And uh, I think sharing what's going on around the country in different pockets is is hugely valuable.
4: That's brilliant. Thank you, Chris.
0: Barb, I think that brings us nicely to uh, Adrian's point uh, and Farhan picked up on it as well earlier. Um, we're going to talk about uh, digital adoption and exclusion. So Adrian, you wanted to know how we can ensure that digital health tools benefit everybody and that sectors of society not excluded. I'd love for you for you to come in here and uh, give us an explanation on that.
3: Yeah, thank you. So I I can tell you I can tell you a little bit about what we've done, um, but I would be really interested to hear other people's views on it. So the so the way we've looked at digital exclusion is really probably against uh, four main areas, and those are, those are to do with uh, digital literacy. So that's kind of the basic under you know people whether they've got the basic understandings of using digital tools, whether they've got an email address and so on. Uh, another area is access to technology. We know in quite a lot of our deprived areas, they don't have broadband at home, they don't have laptops. Um, this one, I think is mitigated somewhat by uh, smartphone adoption, which is now getting you know to really significant levels across the UK. that's sort of now ninety percent I understand in the adult population. Uh, the third area w- w- is quite an interesting one. It, it's sort of the fear of being scammed and it and it happens to, particularly older people where their children are telling them, oh, you need to be very careful stuff you're getting in. And, you know, don't reply to things you're getting in on your phone. And it, it is causing a little bit of a problem when you've got uh, some of the systems, the GP clinical systems, AcuRx systems like that, which are messaging the older person. They are getting a little bit frightened to respond. So you might get a message saying, into your blood pressure data. They, they're thinking, oh, this is a scam. They don't want to turn their phone on. And the and the fourth group, um, I don't think there's any really specific barriers. They're just uh, people who really haven't yet engaged with the digital tools around health. Uh, they're carrying on doing what they're always doing. They're still dropping their uh, patient repeat prescription in the letterbox of the GP surgery. They just haven't kind of caught up with the fact that they can do things differently. So against those, those categories, and, and, and there's all kinds of subcategories within that, the bits of work we've done is we've we've tried to ask the community what they need so we've we've gone out to some of the voluntary groups some of the uh, community groups and uh, and really asked them because it seems a bit odd for people in nhs digital jobs to be to be defining what the needs are and against that we've we've engaged with about 80 different voluntary groups across sussex and we've got some we've been given ideas and we have developed some train the training materials for both uh, the NHS app and the online uh, consultation system that we were just talking about. So the idea with these train the training materials is obviously we give them to the community group, the community group, uh, use them in whichever way best suits, best suits that sector of society. So, so sometimes these groups already have, um, yeah, whatever it is, you know, a community meeting, or they have coffee mornings, or they have whatever. There is a way to then introduce these materials that we've developed. The second way we have we've had some success is is to is to effectively offer a grant program. So we made, uh, it was, I think it was about 160,000 pounds in total. Uh, we said to, uh, to to charities and community groups that they can bid, they can bid for some funding. And they had to explain, you know, how they were gonna use the money, what they were going to do with that money. Um, and that as well has been a really successful program. We've ended up with 12 bids, which we supported. Um, the maximum they could bid for was was 20,000 um, pounds. And we've got, as I say, we've got 12 schemes running. One of those is um, Stone Pillow, which is a, which is a homeless charity. Another one is a charity, uh, based in a community centre working with uh, in a very deprived neighbourhood that does sort of community outreach. Um, the money is being spent on a development worker, a tutor, a laptop, and they and they already have established links with their population. So, for example, uh, the Bengali and Arabic speakers is, is, is one of the groups. They've got some of the sheltered housing re- residents. They have coffee mornings and they're using those uh already existing engagement with the community events to then introduce some of the uh some of the digital first tools like the nhs app and so on excuse me so yeah that's how we sort of that's what we've been doing so far um when we when we found out there was um you know we had 80 different communities engaged we thought this was pretty good but i understand the actual numbers of community groups uh, across Sussex is it, pretty huge I think it's I think it's probably several hundred so I think we're nowhere near reaching all of them but that's that's what we've done so I don't know whether others had other ideas of of, of how we could build on that.
0: go in there Adrian you sound like you've been busy um I will come to Farhan to get your opinion if that's okay.
3: Trace that's uh
2: it's really interesting work that you described there Adrian I think this we have discussions about digital exclusion, but in a slightly different way at NICE, um, we acknowledge there will always be groups of patients that won't be able to access digital. Um, and it almost reflects your, your bell curve of, of you find in a normal distribution, patients that can use it, some that are really good at it, some just won't get on with it at all. Um, and the, the t- sorts of technology at NICE is looking at, we're looking at that patient or clinician facing technology for digital. The digital solutions that will help them at the point of need or point of care. And discussions have evolved a bit to say, all right, there will be these groups that will benefit from digital and we evaluate digital and make technology solutions available to them. And that should allow us to redistribute existing traditional services around those who can't access digital for whatever reason that might be. And I think that's probably the more realistic or possibly the gentler way of, of looking at digital instead of having an... Outcome of you know, we want 100% every population and it has to benefit everyone in the same way. We know that's not realistic at all. But to see variability um, across the board, so it's been a little bit more pragmatic in how we acknowledge and, and handle that digital exclusion. I think the way you described it in terms of literacy and access and fear of digital and things like that is really sensible, is what we know exists. Um, saying that, I'm aware of groups across the country who have gone full on digital first and they've got data to show that you know the actual levels of digital exclusion aren't as high as you'd expect them to be for example based on page related barriers um so it's unpublished and it it, you know makes it difficult but that's all the information we need to see is that that confidence that digital exclusion is definitely a consideration it may not be as big a problem as we might think it is, and at the same time, it gives us an opportunity to re- reconfigure services around those groups that genuinely cannot access digital solutions.
0: Excellent. And Matt, I was going to come to you as well.
4: That sounds uh, a wide-ranging, lots of engagement across all the different community groups. So I don't think I'd be able to build on uh, the amount of engagement you're doing across those different groups, but just sharing a bit of ex- uh, experience and, and thoughts is that, the more patients we can move to digital and building on the last conversations on online consultations the evidence shows that you can reduce the number of telephone calls going into a practice so if you've got less calls going into the practice patients that struggle to use digital are more likely to be able to get through and i know a number of practices and even 111 they they put certain flags against certain patients as soon as a patient calls you can get that to pre-populate, say, X, Y, and Z, Mac has got autism or Mac has got uh, mental health challenges. So that can actually help the practice, manage the patient journey, or not push the patient down into an online consultation for when they, they have um, those learning difficulties. So I think we can use technology to support patients that do struggle to access digital. Um, and I think the, the other key thing is around user experience and where practices um, in... North East London where English is second or third um, uh, choice is that when they've got simple online consultation forms that ask simple questions, um, they can get a lot of access and a lot of people prefer to use simple forms because they don't have to try to articulate what their challenges are over the telephone. So if a patient's got mental health or struggle to speak English, actually having time to think about what's wrong with them and what they're asking for can actually benefit them. but if the form's got 30 different questions and asking lots of complicated questions as some products do at the moment, they are going to struggle and then you get digital exclusion. So I think there's two things here. One, digital can improve access, but also we've got to make sure that we're doing the design right, picking up on the previous conversations, that it's got to be simple, it's got to be easy to follow um, and easy to use. And that, that way you widen up the amount of people that can use, I suppose, digital access and it becomes more convenient and actually picking up on I think Chris's point previously, if you've got kids, family, or you're working, actually it can open up the opportunities because you could put your request in at three o'clock in the morning if you've got repeat prescriptions. You could use the NHS app um to go online and do that at midnight if or in your in your work break. So you don't have to wait to try to get through to your practice. So there's benefits to it, but I think that we've got to get the user experience right and actually the comms to those patient groups and picking up on agents point there, there's 800 plus different groups there. We've got to look at trying to get the comms to those patient groups to understand what the benefits are there and also what tools are available to them.
0: Excellent. Uh, Chris, what would you like to add here?
4: So,
1: first of all, I just wanted to um, say with Matt's point about um, digital the more people can get onto digital allows more capacity for people on the phone to answer the people that really need it. I completely subscribe to that. And I think it, I I always have to reiterate to people that although I'm working what's called a digital first uh, program, it doesn't mean that I support digital only primary care. It's about getting the right people to use the right tools um, as much of the time. So digital inclusion is a really broad topic. um, And so, we had a, and, and and this is something I feel really passionate about, but still learn every day about um, how we can make things more inclusive. So, in our Digital First program in Greater Manchester, we commissioned a usability and accessibility study um, of digital tools that people were using. And it was really, really eye opening. So, beyond the obvious in terms of uh, language and age and Age, I think, I I don't think is a is a direct uh, barrier. I think it, there are there are other elements and sort of subtopics within it which are, but it's it's important to to sort of delve a bit deeper on that. But for example, people are using digital tools really well when it allows them to. So you might have someone that's visually impaired and uses a screen reader device, um, and it's a real surprise when you find a lot of the tools that we use are not compatible with this. So the I think um, I saw Min Al-Bakai talk um, a while ago and she used a really good example where someone had just plonked a picture on a website, on their practice website, which had all of their navigation guidance in. But behind every sort of image, there's a, there's some descriptive text and a screen reader reads the descriptive text rather than the image. So it'll be reading along saying, if you need to access your GP, call this number man with a banana uh, because it just, you know, it, it, it's, it just reads out and that, Imagine if you're using the tool, you just give up. So what, this makes no sense. Um, the other thing is about, uh, you know, the language you use. So I'm always surprised by the fact that the the average reading age of someone in this country is 9 to 12 years. Um, and that's the language that we need to pitch things at. Um, and I constantly need to challenge myself when I'm doing that. So fundamentally, we need to make whatever tools we're using inclusive by design. And I think there's a tendency to bolt on inclusivity at a later date and so we're well, we going to adapt it for this and adapt it for that but we need to think about that really from the outset and just picking up on something adrian said before in terms of some people feeling um concerned about uh putting personal details onto it onto an app well that was brought out in our usability study um because a lot of these organizations that are commercial partners with the nhs which Absolutely essential to the functioning of an NHS and moving things forward, but when it's a uh, an unfamiliar um company or logo, that in many ways I think quite rightly makes people cautious and so it's how we design things with NHS branding so that people see that consistency and the fact that we can access um, an increased number of on online consultation platforms through the NHS app is really a good thing because the NHS app is something that people subscribe to. Um I think I, I think it's such a huge topic about digital inclusion and so many points to cover. I think the only other thing I'd add is that I'm aware there's a the NHS widening dish, digital participation report due to be published relatively soon, which has been I think contributed to by lots of different boys, including the Good Things Foundation, who um have a track record of looking at, um, digital exclusion through lack of tech. There's also lack of data. Um, so, you know, it it costs money for people to use an online tool through their pay as you go data. Um, and I think that report will be really, really informative to all of those working in digital primary care across, across this country, um, with good practice guidance and case studies and, and, you know, principles to follow because we need, as I say, we need to do it by design from the outset uh, and think about inclusivity at, at every every turn so that we can get that point where we get as many people as we can to use and have good experience using in digital first tools so that those people that really can't use digital tools have someone on the phone who's got the time to do it. And you're not spending 45 minutes queuing on the phone because again, if you want a pay as you go phone contract that's 45 minutes of paying for your phone call um which is another excluding factor so uh, as I, as you can tell I could probably go on for hours um because it's it's such a huge topic but i think it's so important that we we surface all of this
0: no it's really good to see how passionate you are Chris and that that shines through um we're going to move on to Farhan's question if that's okay with you all um we've got How can we reconcile the emerging and often low levels of evidence for digital health technologies being used in a health service, which is underpinned by evidence-based practice? Farhan, stitch me up though, that mouthful. Uh, What would you like to say?
2: Uh, Just talking about reading level of being a nine-year-old. Sorry about that question. (laughs)
0: What are you trying to say? (laughs) Rude. (laughs)
2: So evidence-based practice, you know, probably preaching to the convert here, but it's been around since the nineties and the NHS has built on it. And it's taken a little bit of time for it to permeate through the NHS. You know, it's essentially using a scientific methodology for clinical decision-making with a view to, to improve consistency and quality, ultimately to benefit patients. Um, homeopathy as an example, I was only fully decommissioned in 2013, but the NHS used to pay for it until then. We've now got this rapidly emerging digital sector, which is bringing new solutions. You know, they're they're mostly designed by tech innovators who aren't that familiar with the uh, healthcare landscape. So they very much use the, the innovator mindset to develop products and push them into the market. Some of them could be game changing, but we're trying to plug it into a system that very much looks to evidence to make decisions. And in most cases, there are low levels of evidence for a lot of digital solutions it for, firstly, taxpayers actually paying for them. Um, and then, you know, we expect clinicians to use them. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there that we're trying to navigate through, It'd be really good to understand how we reconcile this. gap between research innovation, the evidence that's produced between those and two different areas and. Uh, how comfortable we might be or might not be with, with driving that innovation on the ground.
0: Brand, thank you so much. I was losing your bit there, which is ironic given the uh, topic that we're discussing, but we will come to the next person. Would you like to, to add to that, Matt?
4: I think you can always be a challenge in digital innovation because you're innovating and then you're, you're changing the products and always moving forward. So having that formal, I suppose, historic NHS health 2 years study, technology has moved on and operational teams have moved on. So I think it's how do we get those local benefits and more, I suppose, simulations of this was the benefit of inputting, I suppose, using automation, for example, um, is is an example of how do we prove that automation using software box to support some of the operational processes in primary care will make a difference and can uh, release time. And I think it's looking at individual practices or group of practices and having case studies and trying to look at what benefits you're going to capture at the beginning and it's one thing across the digital first program we haven't been i suppose brilliant at the moment we're trying to play catch up to evidence uh, digital and all the work that we've been doing over the last four or five years has made a difference so we've got snippets of good bits of work we've got automation in place that's saved some practices 15, 16 hours a week by automating their long-term condition recalls. We know that online consultations can reduce telephony calls into a practice and it can capture, reduce the time it takes for practices to get back to patients. But I think it's a case of trying to capture those key benefits at the beginning to evidence that you um, deliver something at the end of it. I know with the remote monitoring programs that we've also been working on, it's been very difficult to capture that we've reduced demand going to 999 and reduced hospital admissions. Um, It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of access to data. So I think it's going back to those basics of what data can you capture? What's going to be crucial for local practices or PCNs or ICSs to invest in it and what information do you need to capture? And if you get that at the beginning of the journey and get the vendors brought into it as well, um, it you you can capture the data, um, but sometimes you have to go with your gut feeling that this is gonna give give an improve an improvement and capture that subtle user experience, whether it's the patients or the clinicians. But there's no magic answer to this.
2: That, if I
0: could
2: you. just come in there, yeah it, sure, the yeah yeah no problem. Just, just that gut feeling, because how do you translate? You know, how do you sell that to a clinician? He's ultimately got to take the responsibility for using a a product. I think that's where we try to, we're aware of a disconnect there, um, and yeah, there is this different, there's a differing level of risk appetite amongst different types of professional. The innovators will be much more likely to pick up a a product and try to use it compared to, you know, GP that's been around for years and very much,
4: um, familiar with, you know traditional evidence-based practice i think just coming back in i think it's building on chris's point earlier as about that community of practice you'll always find I a 10 percent of practice will go that sounds like a good idea i've seen it we've got a problem that will solve my problem um and then those early adopters will just take it on board because they recognize it can save them time and then it's building up the evidence to convince the, I suppose the eighty percent that actually it's worthwhile changing, and then you go on that journey.
0: All right. Thank you very much, uh, Adrian. You put your hand up. What would you like to add?
4: Yeah, it's just saying so we sort of come back round to data, haven't we? And the, the the
3: trouble with all this is we don't we don't have a control group. So we have a GP practice, and we go right, move to online consultation. That will reduce your phone calls, but we don't quite have the data. And if we did have the data, uh, we've changed about three other things in in that same week. Uh, so so, attributing any particular uh, improvement to a particular change is always really difficult uh, the other side of it i suppose is with apps and i know nice have now started prescribing or recommending uh, i should say certain certain apps um that's interesting as well uh, i think just because there are so many different uh healthcare apps out there uh, having some sort of set of curated uh recommended apps for a particular area or for a particular disease group i think is quite useful and that's something we're starting to look at so rather than just saying go on play store and help yourself it's perhaps a bit more here's three or four that we think would perhaps be helpful in your situation and once you've got those three or four having them actually prescribed by a by a clinician makes a huge difference to the likelihood of somebody going to use that app rather than just going plucking something mm-hmm. out of let's so say play store or all from uh, the apple equivalent
0: that's fab. thank you adrian for that and chris we'll come to you your final thoughts i'm so sorry we're gonna to have to um round this up relatively shortly time's flown has not it
1: um that's no problem mate and um, i think the uh the question with evidence is about what evidence you're trying to get so if you're looking say if you're having a um a typical trial based you know uh, question it, it is there benefit of one thing over another um is does it pr- improve life expectancy does it improve outcomes so that's going to be difficult to measure but it's about framing the question that we want to answer so um if a digital tool can uh reduce your weight on the telephone so that is a huge uh metric which practices are going to look at and if you go to a patient participation group things like that are the things that really affect um people's experience using general practice so I think that the the evidence is always going to be hard to get, but we can look at some things in in a softer way. Um, and uh, you know, there, there's certain things we need to know. We need to know if there are never events, you know, and we need to have robust reporting of things. So if there's a a, a highly clinical significant error, a clinically significant error that comes through the use of an OC platform we need to flag that and we need to alert that and report on it and do your um analysis of what what's happened and there is learning to have from that that is a form of evidence um similarly i think we need to you know learn from experience and not just experience of patients but experience of people in the in practices because um improving the the working life of people in our organizations is is hugely important now as we're uh, low on low on staff and and having both a recruitment and a retention crisis, um, so anything we can do to to pull those uh, sort of proxy measures, I suppose, to improve improvements in evidence, um, uh, is really valuable.
0: Fantastic. Well, that point takes us to the end of the podcast, and I just really want to take this quick opportunity to thank you all again for providing your insights on the topic. I've personally learnt a lot again, as always. So uh, thanks very much for joining me today.